Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. My name is Colin Hunter, and today I have the utter delight of being joined by one of my favorite people, Dr. Leanne Davey, author of The Good Fight, author of Inspire Your Team to Grow Up, Get Along, and Get Stuff Done. What a great title for a book. She will entertain us, she will entertain you today in terms of her thoughts and her engaging sense of of passion and energy for the topic she's got in there. She'll talk about how she's fighting a fight on a number of fronts, her work and strategy uh, and what she does on LinkedIn is amazing, but also just recently her work with November, what she's saying no to in November. I've just, it's kept me going throughout November, um, keeping into the conversations there. So you're going to hear a number of things today from uh, Leanne around her works. They call her the teamwork doctor. Um, yeah, and I, and I think if I have team issues, I'm going directly her, to her to, to get her in. And the good fight is about positive conflicts. So you'll hear some messages in there about positive conflict and the use of conflict to change change the dynamics and change conversations that are happening in your organizations. So I'm delighted to have Leanne Davy on today. Look forward to the for getting your feedback on what you think of the conversation too. I'm delighted to be joined by a Canadian today, Leanne Davy, a friend. We met at ISA conference. For those who might have heard me talk about ISA as a, a gathering of some of the greats and maybe not so great in my case <laughs> in the learning profession to gather around and we share ideas and share thoughts. And this lady is, is incredible in terms of her thinking. She's got some great ideas. She's the author of a number of books, which I'll let her tell you about, but I'm going to love this conversation today, I'm sure. And I hope you do as well. So Leanne, welcome. Thanks, Colin. I'm so excited to be here. Tell me a bit about yourself because you've got a fascinating story. I love it. Um, But I'd love for them to hear a bit of a potted history of you. Yeah. So I am somebody who is trying to make work a more meaningful part of people's lives. And that's just the mission Mm -hmm. that I'm on in the world. And so about six years ago, my husband and I quit our jobs to create a tiny little firm we call Three Co's. And it's called Three Co's because of the mission, which is to transform the way people communicate, connect, and contribute so they can achieve amazing things together. So those are the Three Co's. So we do that in basically two ways working primarily with CEOs and their executive teams, both on strategy, executive team effectiveness, and mobilizing the top 100 leaders. And then I take those insights and I try and share them in service to, you know, people we can't work with directly through Mm -hmm. books, through blogs, through keynote speaking, those sorts of things. But really at the heart of it, it's really about collaboration. And our specialty is that helping people achieve amazing things together. So that's what gets me up in the morning. And it sure is hard, fun, interesting work. Never worried about not having enough team dysfunction to pay my mortgage. So it's it's all good. (laughs) It's one of those ones where you go, well, will we ever not be needed in life now? (laughs) Because so no. that's the question. When no. humans are involved, we are needed in the background. Yeah, to help. <laughs> I think it, even the AI bots are at some point going to oh. start fighting with each other. So I'm like, we're good. Wouldn't that be great to coach a <laughs> bot? Yeah. <laughs> Conversational <laughs> bot and coaching. Yeah. 
And then what I love is you've been labelled, I was doing my bit of research in the back, you've been labelled the teamwork doctor. So we've got a doctor in the house who's a teamwork doctor. I love that. Where did that come from? Oh, just a client, a, a friend who, you know, was, I think they were introducing me to their team and they did that serious bio. You know, when people read mm. the bio and you're like, oh God, don't say those things. And so it's like, Leanne has a PhD in organizational psychology. And as soon as they hear the psychology, everybody's looking for the couch and the ink blots. Right. So I think this person was like, no, 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 no. She's a, she's a teamwork doctor. Somebody else went in a different direction with the same thing. They're like, no, she's not a couch psychologist. She's a water cooler psychologist. (laughs) I love that. I know. So I get the water cooler psychologist more now. And I think what it is, is people who know the work who are Mm -hmm. trying to help people understand that it's not going to feel like therapy and it's not going to start with tell me about your mother but yet you know there is the rigor the evidence base the so you kind of get the doctor honorific as the like no no you should listen to her but just so you know it's actually going to be fun it's it's not good yeah and i think that's beautiful because that sort of sums you up you get the serious and then you get the humorous side and it's uh, always in and tell us a bit about where you live and i work i mean you're not that serious you must have other. oh no not at all (laughs) so i live in toronto and have lived in toronto or very close to Toronto my whole life. So extremely boring, except I am in love with the world. And so we've spent the last few years closing down the business for a sabbatical every August. And we've taken the family to five continents, exploring, you know, renting houses, living in homes, going to local grocery stores and and sort of being a citizen of the world. So I would say that's one of the major aspects of me is although I'm a, I'm a homebody, I'm really, I'm so Canadian. It's so painful how Canadian I am. It's just terrible. And hopefully in the good ways and all the bad ways, but really I get tremendous joy from being a citizen of the world. And I guess the only other interesting thing about me is I'm an adult onset tap dancer. I started, took up tap dancing at 40, took Mm. up hip hop dancing at 48 that wow. is very funny. Yeah. I just invite you to imagine me doing yeah. hip hop. My husband and I are the two the two sole employees of Threecos, and we've got uh, two girls, one in university and one in high school. Ah, so we've got something in common. We've got two daughters. So yeah, mm-hmm. no, nice. We could talk about that. I describe myself as a, a father of daughters. And then people say, so why do you say that? And so for many reasons, but that's, <laughs> that's another story. So, but yeah. it, it, it means something, <laughs> it I must does. say. Actually, I think, you know, next time we see each other, you'll have to commiserate. You'll have to go and commiserate with Craig about being a father of daughters. You know, it, it's a thing. <laughs> it, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. <laughs> no, it's you, good. Keep saying and, that, yeah. And if they're listening to this, because I love, you that's exactly it (laughs) they'd probably be embarrassed by this and go really why would i want to listen to my dad on one of these podcast things true i know my kids will never listen but they now now that they're in the house and we're all together they hear me giving speeches and now they know that they are part of my speeches which you know i'm like well tough too bad yeah that's how it goes yeah. No, I have a great teaching point for my oldest daughter at one point when I was about leading my own people. She used to come and sit at my desk and sit below my desk as so she'd sit on the floor. And there was one moment where I was doing something and, and she looked up at me, kicked me and said, bully. And it was one of the most powerful bits of feedback wow. I've ever had. And, it, and I, I sort of was just about to react and argue. And then I realized that whether it was called it or not, the behavior I just demonstrated was no good. And therefore wow. there was that moment of, 
later on of just being so proud of it. She wasn't that yeah. old, must have been 12 or 13, but to spot yeah. that. My younger one's the same. She came with me to a speech and I'm, I'm going to say she was maybe nine or 10. Mm. She's a little, and she took like pages of notes. Mm. And one of her notes was, did you realize that you don't look at the left side of the room? Interesting. And I was like, what? And it turns mm. out she's right. Like I mm. have some hemisphere neglect thing where I really do pay more attention to one side. And I've noticed now mm. I pay more attention to one side of the page when I'm reading. And like, mm. so yes, yeah, sometimes out of the mouths of babes, eh? Wow. Oh, oh yeah well maybe like, we all these other on. people liked it <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's like they well they have low standards then i'm like you're nine <laughs> but no she was bang on so our uh, daughters wow they, the bright future for them i know and I, I love it because one of the concepts i'd love to talk to you about is how you've done what you've done because you've got a number of books out tell us about your books and then i'll go yeah. to the questions so my first book was written with colleagues in the consulting firm that I used to work at. And it was really fun because they had written a book called The Leadership Gap. So I came in and of course, as soon as you put a book out on the market called The Leadership Gap, it's kind of incumbent on you to figure out the next book, which is how do you close the leadership gap? It would help. <laughs> so, yeah. And so I had this contribution to thinking about the role of the individual because I was a psychologist coming in. And so mm. I was thinking about how the individual fits within the context of both the culture and the system of the organization. And so mm. they said, Hey, well, you know, that's a great idea, you know, come in and write the book with us. So that book's called leadership solutions. And it's really a reference book. Mm. It's not in my voice. Mm. It's sort of fits with them. So then I, of course, had this huge desire to write my book. And so I wrote, you first, inspire your team to grow up, get along and get stuff done. Sounds like my dad talking to me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, you know me well enough to know that it wouldn't say stuff if it wasn't on the cover of a book. So uh, (laughs) I would be another more colorful S word. So I talk a little bit about the way I think about my business is Mm -hmm. a little bit like Dr. Oz and Dr. Oz now is a bit of a crackpot and it's probably a bad metaphor, but, but people understand what I mean when they say the vast majority of my life, he's a cardiac surgeon, right? So he's wheeling sick people into the OR, cracking them open. And of course, at that point, the risk is high. Some people die on the table. And that's how I feel about teams once they get really toxic is that I'm kind of wheeling them in the OR, cracking them open. It's expensive. The recovery is long and there are teams that don't survive the process. And so at some point, Dr. Oz was like, look, this is so frustrating. I need to get out and help people be healthy, stay healthy so that I don't see this. And that will be my service in a show, in a magazine, whatever. So that's how I think about my life. I still love the really deep work, helping teams, even teams that are in trouble. But then I switched to, I need to write a book that instead of, you know, the heart attack, <laughs> like dealing with the heart attack. Here's the kind of healthy living habits. And so you first is that. And you first, the promise of the book is that from any seat at the table, even if you're just a member of a team, you're not the team leader or whatever, you can change your team for the better. So that was that book. And it was my first attempt to say, I'm going to try and do things that help people proactively keep their teams healthy instead of having to deal with toxic teams. So that was that book. And then as I worked with that book, as I spent more and more time, I zeroed in on one of the chapters in that book was called Embrace Productive Conflict. And it became clear that that was the biggest ask, 
that was the thing that people couldn't do. They didn't know how to do. They couldn't get their minds around it. And so my more recent book, The Good Fight, goes deep into what's the cost of avoiding conflict? How do we do it better? And then the big breakthrough for me in that book was figuring out that we need to move from conflict as an event Mm-hmm. So all the conflict literature right now is about conflict as an event, difficult conversations, fierce conversations, crucial conversations, radical candor. It's all an event. And as someone who hates conflict, having to like steal myself for this like big event of conflict, I was just not doing it often enough. I was using the like, I'll just pick my battles line. And so what I cracked in the good fight was how do we make productive conflict a habit? So less like root canal, more like flossing. And so that's what I'm proudest about in that book is this Mm -hmm. idea that we need to go beyond this conflict as a habit, conflict as a conversation model and get to, no, we need productive tensions in high frequency, low impact so that we're not having to have these things build up resentment and kind of like having people blow their top or get super stressed out. So that I'm really proud of that in the good fight and the good fight. It's two years old now, but still finding new audiences. And yeah, so it's such an important topic. And I have to say as a Canadian, right? Like, holy, like in general, we really, really suck at conflict. Mm. We're a very passive aggressive people, which most people don't know about us. They think (laughs) we're nice. I know it's like, I know the tourism poster says we're really nice. We're very nice, you know, to your face. Don't turn around. Um, (laughs) so yeah, we're passive aggressiveness is, is a bit of a challenge for us. We're working through it. So uh, there's two things that are making me think. So I want to, I'm going to come back to the the grow up piece because that had a reaction and you heard me say, that sounded like <laughs> my dad and I want to want to come to that, back to that. But I wanted to pick up the good fights and apart from being a great TV series as well. So yeah, you know, yeah I know I named the book before the TV before it happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're looking for the good fight, you might get a TV program of the book and I'll give the details later on. There is this piece that um, I was in a workshop the other day and somebody said, we were talking about Tuckman's stages of team formation and the storming is one phase but people say do we need to storm it you know they weren't canadians but there were people saying (laughs) but tell talk to me about the system of conflict and productive conflict because that we talked about habits and i'm a great believer in james clear's work about yeah yeah yeah. you know we we don't write atomic habits that just makes it seem like really awesome it is awesome. Awesome. <laughs> changed my life. And yeah. that's me being an, an advocate. So there's this bit about we don't rise to the level of objectives, we fall to the level of our systems. So yeah. you talked about habits, but talk to me about the system of productive conflict for those listening, because that would be useful. Yeah, that's probably what I've spent the most time working on is making productive conflict a system. Mm. And so there are two core tools that we use. And I just decided if I was going to you know, help people achieve amazing things together, I had to give these things away for free in the book or well, nice. for 20 bucks. Yeah. So they're in the book. <laughs> and the first one is a tool that allows you to get clearer with one another about expectations. Mm. So what is the unique value of each layer in an organization? 
how do they add that value proactively before work is done instead of reactively? So the stupid analogy I use is imagine you're in a team meeting and it's about five minutes before the end and you're kind of packing up your stuff and everybody's getting fidgety and the boss says like, hang on, don't, don't go anywhere yet. So I got this message from on high that apparently the company's doing a bake sale to raise money for charity. And I need, I need everybody to bake for the bake sale. And you're in a huge hurry and the boss is in a hurry and you're like, fine, I'll bake. Okay, whatever. And so everybody runs off. And so you're wrecking your brain trying to figure out what you're going to bake. And so you decide that your carrot zucchini muffins are always a huge hit with your friends. And so you're going to make your carrot zucchini muffins and you slave over them. And you're so proud of them when you bring in this tray of muffins, the golden crispy tops. And then you see John and John's bought donuts from the store and you give him the side eye. Like, of course, you just bought donuts from the store, John. So you're feeling all proud. And the boss takes one look at your muffins and goes, muffins? Who makes muffins for a bake sale? And then the boss kind of goes like, I'll fix it. And he grabs a thing of like M&Ms or something from the, from the vending machine. He starts shoving M&Ms into your carrot muffins, your beautiful muffins. Yeah. So I always tell this stupid story because... I feel like this is exactly what happens in organizations all the time. We get unclear directions. We don't take time to get aligned. We don't admit that we aren't clear. We go off and, and do a bunch of work, sometimes just to show that you know we take accountability and, and whatever else. We do the work. We never let anyone taste the batter. <laughs> we just like go straight to the finished product. And then they're disappointed in that product. They kind of change it after the fact where it tends to not work and make everybody feel frustrated. I'm frustrated you ruined my beautiful work. You're frustrated that I didn't get the spec right in the first place. And this is what happens all the time. And I get a lot of leaders are like, oh, Leanne, I have been known to shove M&Ms into a baked muffin. So when we add this language around, okay, like let's get aligned on the recipe. Is this a bake sale for a bunch of vegans in Birkenstocks or is this a bake sale for a bunch of kids? <laughs> like we need to yeah. know because it matters, right? Yeah. And then this is the recipe I'm going to bake. Is that good? Because it's a lot easier to change the course on what recipe before you've bought the ingredients and then taste the batter. And right, there's a lot of yeah. stages. And so this process that we've built helps teams to get clarified on What's the unique value of every layer? How does every layer set the next layer up to be successful? How do we add that value more proactively, less reactively? And then, you know, what's the value we can add in the review and governance of work with people expecting that they're not going to get a rubber stamp and a gold star, that people, when they bring work, are going to improve it. But the improving it is more like maybe some sprinkles on top, not like shoving M&Ms into the batter. So that's the first process that yep. radically, radically changes the frequency with which things turn into conflict because people know what they need to do to set everybody else up for success. So that's half of the equation. The second half of the equation is a process for naming and mapping the tensions that should exist on a healthy team. This is the problem. I think we've come to accept that 
a horrible, horrible poster of rowers as our metaphor. And actually it was really funny because I had somebody in a session yesterday talking about, well, for me, we need to really be like the people in the ro- the rowers. And I'm like, oh no, he doesn't know that my whole shtick is about this. this. <laughs> so I said, you know what? Yes, we have common goals when we're on cross-functional teams, Mm. but we aren't in the same boat. We Mm. aren't pulling the same direction. In fact, our entire purpose is to pull in different directions. We have different expertise. We have different stakeholders. We are obliged to put tension. So we want sales pushing to make something more compelling, more customized, more differentiated. And we want operations pulling hard to say, no, we want it more standardized, more consistent, more scalable. Those two should always be in tension. And at the same time, quality should be like, oh, hey, (laughs) and right. So the second process that we roll out broadly in organizations is to map the tensions that are supposed to be there to help people have a language and an empathy for the different perspectives and to get to what I call, you know, conflict as a feature, not a bug. And so those two processes that make these natural tensions and conflicts a habit Mm. that we have these conversations extremely frequently with low intensity. That's the system that helps us make productive conflict just part of our everyday conversations, as opposed to these big events. Love that. I love the the sticking M&Ms. It's the (laughs) M&M analogy I've had. The other one was the the rock band who used to uh, refuse to have brown M&Ms. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a great story. That was Van Halen. Yeah. And it turns out that that was like brilliant. It had nothing to do with M&Ms. It was that their rider was apparently like 70 some odd pages of how to put up their stage properly and people weren't doing it well. And Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of risks. Like if whoever David Lee Roth or whomever it is, I'm going to show my Van Halen ignorance, but um, is climbing the light thing and it hasn't been put up properly, there's huge risk. And so I think on like page 63, they put in the rider, a bowl of M&Ms with no brown ones or whatever. And then all they had to do was walk in look at the bowl of M&Ms and immediately they knew of what level of detail that the people setting up the stage had done. I'm like, okay, these are some smart ass rockers. They like, oh, the, absolutely. like brilliant, yeah. brilliant. And of course the story gets told is just almost like they're divas who don't like brown M&Ms. And of course it was, it was a very strategic, brilliant. I love that story. It is. And it was in a book called Be More Pirates. So it was about how would you, <laughs> how would you, you know, do some, some good Arr. trouble in there. Arr. Yeah. 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 The, uh, audible as well worth a listen to, but, oh, yeah, but that's it, great. good trouble. Yeah, yeah. Is putting it in there to be able to, so that tension. So I'm loving that bit. And it, it, we use something called brief back, check back. So that honest question that leaders could ask, which is I've told you something now play back to me. What yeah. I love that. Yeah. And then you can do small checkbacks. Yeah. With them. So I'm talking a lot about that in the context of remote teams, because I find alignment is really struggling or struggling to get to alignment. And then if I listen to leaders, they give out instructions and then their whole alignment check is like, uh, so you good? Yeah. <laughs> and he's going to be like, actually, no. Like, no, I'm an idiot. So the the I yeah. love the brief back check back because it's like, okay, tell me in your own words so I know 
that you actually have interpreted it the same way. So I think that's, I believe in that advice all the time. I think it's extra important in remote teams. Yeah. As opposed to you good. And I, and I think it's what it's where I've realized I'm a rubbish communicator when I've worked <laughs> out. <laughs> really? You got that? How did you get that? So maybe I need to simplify my message or get somebody else to write it when I'm doing it. Yeah. yeah love it. <laughs> so talking about the, the tensions and, yeah. and working in there, because there's a tension between that I, I love to pick up from your other book, which is the, you know, the team to grow up. Yeah. And, and I have this philosophy about creating playgrounds where it's fun. Yes. So there's yeah. a tension in there about growing up versus having fun. And therefore you're, you're asking people to have serious tension in some ways, yeah. but how, how can that be fun and how it could be engaging would be yeah. just a useful thing to think. I about. love that. So yeah. for me, grow up is like own your crap. Okay. That's all I mean by that. Really. It's, yeah. it's, it's funny because when I was working with a PR firm to do the PR campaign for that book, the, the leader of the PR firm read it. And he said, this is basically a book about accountability. And I said, yeah, he's like, you know, you could call it a team book or whatever else, but this is a book about accountability. And I said, you're right. And that's what the grow up is about. It's essentially stop pointing at everybody else to make your team more effective and start changing the way you act because teams are a dynamic. So, you know, we always think about the wicked person on the team, but in my experience, the wounded person on the team is equally as much of a problem as so is the witness. So if we can think about wicked, wounded, and witness in any team, that it doesn't matter which one of those three you are in the given situation. If you change your behavior, you'll change the team dynamic. So that's why grow up is in there. In terms of play, I'm a massive proponent of play. And I think when you do own your stuff, when you're willing to be vulnerable and say, Hey, like that was not how I want to show up and I blew it in there or whatever, then there's a safety with one another to play and to have some fun and to go out on a limb and all those things, because there's the confidence that the trust is real and the trust can withstand errors, mistakes, bumps in the road, conflicts. So I think it's liberating when you're on a team with people who own their stuff, uh, then, then you can just be more liberated to be playful. And you know, if you get it wrong, if you're a little, cause we've all done that, right? We're all having this hilarious, we're at the pub, we're teasing or whatever. And then all of a sudden you, you tease and it's hurtful and you're like, yeah. uh Oh, but if you know that the person who's cross the line is willing to say, sorry about that. I like that totally didn't come out how I meant it. And the person on the other end is like, yeah, okay. I was probably being overly sensitive. Then you can keep going. (laughs) So, right. If people aren't owning their stuff, if they are being immature about it, if they're being childish about it, then there's no, you're not at liberty to push Mm. the boundaries either with play or with serious conversations. I think that grow up piece really allows us to go to all the fun places. And I like to play for sure as much as the next person. I know. And it's, uh, and it's an important, it's interesting because you go back to the principles that, you know, the conscious mind and, and that the fact that in the moment, your thoughts, your, your feelings are just a projection of your thoughts in the moment. I love that Jamie smart piece and clarity where he talks about there's a child, you just have this reset, automatic reset, your mind goes. So you have a conflict with a friend and suddenly next time you're best pals, you're crying next, you're laughing. 
And actually, as we grow older and get a degree more serious, then they, we can hold things in because we don't want to admit we're wrong or we can argue. But actually, I love that. And I love the, the, the wicked, wounded and witness piece. I think that is great. And it's so interesting. I did an article for HBR about this wicked wounded witness and somebody wrote a a question about it. And I like, which is more the issue or whatever. I said, actually counterintuitively, in my experience, the person who has to leave the team to rehabilitate it is much more likely to be the wounded than the, than the wicked. So the wicked person, in my experience, you can usually help them accomplish what they need to accomplish in a way that's more constructive. The wounded person who's become the victim, whose narrative has become that they are victimized or that I find many people cannot recover from that. And they'll go on to be happy and productive and everything else somewhere else. But again, what you were talking about, as we grow older, our positions calcify Mm -hmm. and we just we can't get past that victim narrative. And so it is counterintuitive, but my experience is that once I am working with a team long enough to know that somebody can't believe again, they can't. And and you know what, as animals, it's smart that we have brains that create aversions to things. That was constructive that kept us safe. And so sometimes we kind of overshoot, but that's okay. And so keeping that wounded person on the team for too long can be extremely destructive to them because they are not having a positive experience and to the whole dynamic of the team. So that was one of the really interesting findings for me was that we all key in on the wicked person, but it's that wounded person that is the most toxic to a team dynamic in some cases. So I'm going to try to put myself as a, somebody who suffers from imposter syndrome and has for most of their life, and it's part of the book, and I'm a recovering. But there's a piece <laughs> that, you know, I am recovering. I'm getting there. I look at it and think, so you're asking people to provide or create productive conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is not meant to catch you out, but then you're oh. saying that the person is, the wounded is the most likely to suffer. And quite a few people listening, I'm sure will be like, so that's the reason I don't do productive conflict because I am likely to be the wounded and be the one who suffers from that. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, Yeah, so that's where the skills of teaching Mm -hmm. those conflict avoidant people how to engage skillfully Mm -hmm. so that they are less likely to create an aggressive backlash reaction Mm -hmm. and more likely to get to the other side. It's also why I'm extremely hard on witnesses because once a wicked and a wounded are in a dynamic and sometimes it's too wicked and sometimes it's too wounded to be fair. But once you have two people emotionally invested in a dispute, neither of them is in a great position to get themselves out whole. (laughs) So that witness who's, who's grown up with mentors who told them to mind their own business, mind their own business is the advice I'm madly trying to change in the world because that person sitting at the same table, who's now just checking their email to avoid, you know, getting into this melee, that's the person with the most power in the situation to help, to help them hear one another, to help them realize that they're actually fighting about two different things. And, and there is a, a way to have both of those things be true and to, to solve for that, et cetera, et cetera. So my mission is to help the wounded person 
find the words, like literally the sentences, the words they can use to engage constructively in a way that's not vicious, in a way that feels to them like they can look themselves in the mirror at night and be proud of themselves. So helping them for sure. But at the same time, mobilizing the witnesses to say, you need to help. Like, you know, in in uh, you first, there's a chapter called Amplify Other Voices. So if somebody's bullying, like get on the other side and don't let them use sarcasm to shut things down. Don't let them use bullying tactics to shut things down. You help loan your confidence, your credibility to the person who is wounded and, you know, make space for their points. Don't let the other person away with it. So it's for me, a process of of dealing as a facilitator with all three, I'm going after the wicked person, like, you know, okay, how could you say that with no adjectives? I'm very against adjectives in teams. I think they do all sorts of damage. It's ban the adjective because that's where all the judgment lies. And that's where all the misinterpretation lies, right? rigorous to one person is a compliment to the other person is an insult. So I'm working on all three, but I would say if you are somebody who's telling yourself a story about how, you know, you you're being bullied or whatever else, you need help to find the words to advocate for yourself and don't be shy to bring someone else in the conversation to say, you know, Colin, am I missing something here? Like, am I taking this the wrong way? How are you hearing this? So bring, throw, like ask for a lifeline from, from somebody else in the conversation, use, use a question to do it. But it's really important to realize that if you are avoiding the conflict, you are a major contributor to the fact that the team is stuck in conflict. You aren't off the hook. And so, you know, when we're thinking about people of color, when we're thinking about other underrepresented groups, marginalized people, how do you find the words to be able to advocate yourself in in ways that you won't be, you know, with all of the racism that exists, we don't want you labeled as like the angry black woman because you're advocating for yourself. So how do we get the words that are constructive, but how do we also say to everyone else at the table, you can't be silent. Do not mind your own business. Help these people to the other side of this constructively. So the challenge of the work is, is thinking about each of the three individuals and then thinking about the system. I love that. And we could have a whole podcast just on what you've just been talking about in the current world and what's what's been going on there and the uses of different devices to get those conversations. I want a podcast we're hearing from a gentleman who in based in Canada again, who's using improv and comedy to, to bring to life some of the conversations in that group of people, which is so important. Yeah, that's yeah, great. It is. So coming back in, I'm going to tie it in because there's something I love about you and it's, it's not the one thing, it's one of <laughs> 50 things I love about you. <laughs> but it's that one bit I saw that you were doing and you were saying, you were talking about the SWOT analysis with strategy. <laughs> You were on your soapbox. You were like, okay. <laughs> I hang out there a lot. <laughs> yeah, this is wrong. And, you know, if the listeners are getting anything, the soapbox is a well-used place for both of us to get on and have a, a go at something. But you were talking, and I want to link it into you, because you were talking about Otswa. Yeah. So let's just explain to the audience what Otswa is, which is, I think, is fantastic. And I don't know why it's not catching on more. So let's promote it. Stop you know what it makes me more. think of? I, I'm a 
raging Harry Potter fan. And yeah. Hermione Granger creates the Society for the Protection of Elves Everywhere or something like that. And it's the spew <laughs> and it doesn't catch on either. I think that's me and her. Actually, I probably have too much in common with Hermione. I was just about to say, now you mention it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I know, sad. So most of us know what a SWOT analysis is, right? We, we look at our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats as an organization. And, and first off, people don't seem to know what an opportunity or a threat is. Like they talk about those as things inside. Well, a big opportunity is if our managers weren't jerks. You're like, yeah. that's not an opportunity. <laughs> like that's a, your managers being jerks is a weakness. It's that's not true. an opportunity. So opportunities and threats are things outside of your organization, trends, things happening that create opportunity for you or that create risk. Strengths and weaknesses are things inside the organization. And so what happens is because SWAT is a nicer acronym maybe than OTSWA, I'm partial. (laughs) Because of that, people tend to do strengths and weaknesses first. They assess their, their own organization. And from that position, they look at, okay, so what are the opportunities and threats for us? And that's a very limited and constrained view of what's going on in the world and what the opportunities and threats are. And so for me, it's very important to switch the order of those conversations. We need to first look outside. And so when I facilitate this, I actually put a price on anyone who mentions anything internal, they have to make a donation to a charity because you actually have to put a price on it or people just immediately talk internally. So let's look at what's changing in the world, how that creates opportunities for us, how it creates threats for us. And then strengths and weaknesses takes on something very different. It's not just like random judgments about why we rule and why we suck. It's when we see opportunities, what are the strengths of our organization, the truisms of our organization today that help us to capitalize on those opportunities? And what are the strengths that help us mitigate risks? And what are the weaknesses that mean it will be harder for us to capitalize on opportunities or that exacerbate the threats in some way? And when you do it as an Atsu, you come to much more important, much more grounded in reality. And so sometimes they're harder conversations because you realize that, you know, we are completely without a strength that will be necessary to capitalize on the opportunity. But if you're doing strategy, that's what you need to know. What do we have to solve for? Where do we have to change our trajectory? So that's why. And so I was so gratified because I did this big video about this on LinkedIn during my strategy month in April. And then somebody published an article in Harvard Business Review saying the same thing a few weeks later. And I felt so... Felt so, you know, something about when somebody says it on HBR, you feel vindicated. You're like, see? I want to link that into team though, because it, 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 I might be totally off, off beam here. But if you think about what we tend to do with teams and top teams, as you say, is we go in and we start, right, what are your strengths and weaknesses? Yeah. And the context of the opportunities and threats that team are facing is a useful place to start because some of the weaknesses that are perceived first off could be opportunities or could be utilized. Yeah to achieve that. So just wanted your thoughts on that. Oh, well, so I'll come back to the team one in a sec, but strategically, so it was really fun because I was doing a strategy session with a bank this week Mm -hmm. and the bank has been way behind on technology and way behind on a few things. 
So we started talking about how their big competition had gone all in on a few technologies that were physical proximity, like a premise-based technologies. And they had taken huge real estate holdings on Wall Street that were going to do this trading technology. And now, because these guys were so far behind, they have this massive strategic advantage because they didn't invest in any of that stuff. They can do this distributed network in a post-COVID remote world. And so in the chat, while we were talking, I was just like, I love when a major weakness becomes a strategic advantage. That like yeah. the, the sicko in me just loves that as a strategic moment. But let me come back to the team. Sorry, that's much more interesting, my question, but you know. No, no, I love your question. <laughs> no, and it's actually, so our team effectiveness process has four steps. And in the first step, we don't let the team speak about the current state. In our first entire module with a team, there is no mention of current state. So we do the entire external context map exercise. We do all the opportunities and threats. We do not let them speak about strengths and weaknesses. We process the opportunities and threats into a question. What is the organization counting on this team to do given those opportunities and threats? What value do you need to create as a team given this is the world in which you're operating. And so what we do by doing that is we, first of all, move the time horizon out. And secondly, we move from internal to external. Both of those things increase the distance between someone's feelings, (laughs) their egos, and the conversation, Mm -hmm. which creates enough space with a low enough amount of judgment that they can play. So even if the team is dysfunctional, we're not talking about any of the dysfunction. We're saying what's changing in the world. And they're like, this has nothing to do with us. This is the world. Like we didn't plan the pandemic. They get far enough out in time and they get far enough outside that they can say, okay, well, we need to be this and we need to be this and we need to be this. And it's not until the third module (laughs) where we start to say, okay, so where are we relative to that? And what would have to change? And by that point, they, there's more confidence in the process. There's more candor among people. They're more ready to say, you know what, actually, let me raise my hand. I have not been paying attention to the right things. Or when I do this, it pulls us back to the past. And instead of getting into a team building session, where in the first session, everybody's blaming everyone and judging. Instead, when we get to this third module, people tend to raise their hand saying, uh, it's me, I, I need to do something different. And when the first person does that, somebody else says, no, it's me. Mm. <laughs> so I actually take that entire opportunities and threats before strengths and weaknesses, not just in my strategy work, but in the teamwork. And sometimes it's two months before we ever let them talk about what they are today, because we need them to be so excited and invested in what they could and should be that there's enough impetus to get through the hard conversation about what we actually are today. Yeah, I love that. So it's almost the purpose and the, you know, in, in my language, the why we're doing this, we're getting yeah. motivated and we're heading a direction. And actually, it doesn't matter who you've got on the team, as long as you've got the right direction, and, and then you can work on what we need to do. As a team. Right. And then you get a real sense of who on the team can believe, right? Mm-hmm. So you see, and sometimes it's surprising. So I, I never let a team leader make a team change 
from the time we start until that third session, that third module, because people surprise you. Some people who you thought were okay actually show that they're not willing to do anything differently. They're too invested in the status quo. And other people who you thought were stuck become unstuck in this and show new colors. So it's really important that we give it a little time for people to show, can I believe, will I sign up for something new? And am I willing to change how I behave to get a different outcome? to try not using an adjective i'm just going to use the word discipline so but that <laughs> that discipline not discipline yeah. discipline is a really powerful piece to get because i i do believe i think that's part of the trouble we're going back to in the world at the moment about yeah. what the future looks like is more important than actually thinking of how are we going to get there because i think so right. many people are focused on the short term um, yeah so we go to what do we have to solve for you know, as a question all the time, let's agree what we have to solve for before we just start randomly throwing out, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. Because when we realize usually the heart of the issue is that we're not aligned on what we're solving for. And so when somebody else puts out their solution, we don't like it because it's, it may be solving their problem, but it's not solving ours. So how do we get aligned first on what we need to solve for? And then we can talk about uh, what are the potential options and evaluate how well they solve for the different things. So most team conflicts are not that we have the opposite opinion on the same issue. Usually what it is, is I'm trying to solve one problem. You're trying to solve another. We haven't figured that out. And we don't like each other's solutions because they're not the solutions to our problems. If we can kind of get on the whiteboard, the two things or three things or four things we're trying to solve for, it's actually more like working through algebra than to figure out, okay, what's the solution that works for this and this? And and they get there pretty fast. It's just mostly, most conflicts are just, we're actually, we value different things. We have different stakeholders. We're advocating for different things. If we could just realize that, we could come to an answer so much more easily. It's like trying to do algebra without actually getting your two equations with the unknown together. Let's just get the two equations and then we can go. You're breaking my two subjects that I was rubbish at. So algebra, oh, sorry. no, and, and grammar and adjectives. But you know, I, that, what you said there was amazing. So I, I think that's probably one of the most powerful things I've heard for a while because I, I do believe that there's this piece about we used to give people an opportunity in teams to say, are you a team or a working group? Yeah. And that working group is classically siloed, my own objectives, whatever I'm trying to do. And therefore that's the conflict. Whereas when you're a team, what you're saying is you need to understand where we go as a team, then work back to understand what it is. I'm actually playing with a different word instead of working group. So I've now started to come across teams. And so a team for me has to have two things, Mm -hmm. shared goal and interdependence. And so I'm creating this other category, which I call a community. So imagine you're a bunch of regional sales leaders from different regions. So I say, you're a community. So you don't live in the same house. You don't have to share a bathroom and eat the same meals, which takes a tremendous amount of <laughs> goodwill, no. as I know now having four of us in the house. Yes. Um, don't but go there at the moment. Let's concentrate. I know, yes. <laughs> but uh, you are neighbors. And so you can share a lot of learning, which are the good restaurants. Who's the mechanic that's going to you know, fix your car and not overcharge you? And who, who's the rubbish mechanic, right? So it's somehow when I use this language of community, people can understand what that means as well. So, you know, is there a greater chance to support one another? Is there a greater chance to share learning? Is there a chance to share resources? Like I live in Toronto, you know, it's a pretty mild climate for Canada. 
you need a snowblower maybe twice a year. Should you pay the thousand bucks to have a snowblower for twice a year? Or should a bunch of neighbors go in and get one snowblower? And somehow when I added this metaphor of community, people could understand that we need to behave differently, even to be a better community, even if we aren't a team there's a huge chance to be a more effective community for one another as well. So I've been playing with the difference Mm -hmm. between team and community. So are you in one house? In which case you need to do a lot of work on coordination. Like we do of like, I get the bathroom in the morning from seven 30 to seven 40. And if I'm not there, I'm I'm only 10 minutes. Come on. Right. It takes, (laughs) takes huge coordination um, when you're on a team, but if you're just a community there's more the language in the question I find more useful is how do we add more value for one another? What's a community I would love to live in? So that's been helpful. So both of them are work groups, but you know, different levels of interdependence. And so different framing of how we make it constructive. Wow. Cool. I love that. I want to <laughs> want to get to this piece about, I'm going to link it. You know, we, yeah. we have this concept about sailing your ship out of the harbor, finding <gasps> rougher seas, Love being it. more wrong. Love they it. may be, be more pirates as I've been reading this book, but you know, so if you were, if you were to talk about, you know, the time that you have done that massively, maybe wrong, but actually it's been a huge <laughs> learning for you. What, what yeah. So I have to give you a little bit of a preamble to help you understand how truly wrong I was. I came out of graduate school. I was 26. I joined a consulting firm. I quickly was made a manager. I had a team and I had this really unhealthy relationship with my boss. She was just a person who didn't have a ton of self-confidence. And I think I just kind of ooze self-confidence, which is not great with women who don't have self-confidence. I've learned over my career, it's a bad combo. And I don't mean to do that. It just seems to come out of me. So she was really being an overbearing boss. The workload was ridiculous. And as a new manager, I felt I couldn't protect my team. And it was just awful. I was conflict avoidant. I didn't know how to broach this with her. And I I got into, so in the book, I call this conflict debt when there are conflicts that we need to have, but we just let them pile up. And I got into so much conflict debt that I ended up declaring bankruptcy and quitting. So you need that preamble to know that this had been my first job. So I interviewed and interviewed and interviewed and interviewed to find the firm that doesn't have conflict. (laughs) you laughed because that's what I do now. Like, sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. I should be. So I went through eight interviews at the organization that I ended up joining. I'm like, this is it. This there's never going to be any conflict here. Uh, And for the first couple of years, there wasn't, it was amazing. And then a couple of years in my boss and me and a couple of other leaders, we decided we, we had been very successful in Canada, but we were sort of topping out, you know, you get to a certain size in Canada and you can't get much bigger. So we decided we needed to move to the U S we needed to kind of have a thought leadership based approach. And so we implemented this new way of talking about leadership, new way of thinking about leadership. And it was a big change. So our practice had organization development and leadership people. It had coaches, it had assessors and psychologists, and we kind of like we're knitting them all into one. So it was definitely leaving the seas, the calm seas that we knew in a yeah. big way. For I like the way routine. you're weaving it back in. No, it's good. Yeah. Thanks, thanks. I try. I try. <laughs> so we were literally leaving our home port of Canada and, and yeah. setting sail for this big, massive competitive market in the US, a very crowded market. And we were doing it with a very new approach, which was we're not going to lead with coaching and we're not going to lead with assessment. We're going to actually come forward with this 
integrated. We called it the leadership pathway. And we were so proud of this. We thought this was so brilliant. And we just kind of forced it on our team. And our team had some very successful, very talented people who identified with one of these domains and Mm. did not identify with this kind of melting pot kind of model. And I was a bully, I think. I didn't make space for their genuine concerns. And I didn't make space for their just human feeling of being less relevant, less important, less, right? Just Mm -hmm. less confident. And oh, was I wrong? Like Mm -hmm. it was, it just made it so unpleasant for everyone. And here I was thinking I was, you know, God's gift to strategy and all these other awesome things. And it took a long time to realize that, you know, my gung-ho-ness, my vision, all those things were invalidating (laughs) to people. And that change is something that needs to be more of a process, needs to have more people engaged, needs to bake in time for natural resistance, for letting some people put a toe in the water and try it out slowly. And oh, it was painful and ugly. And and I came extremely close to leaving the organization Mm -hmm. when I had the epiphany that oh, wait a minute, you know, there is no organization without conflict. And my conflict avoidance had shown up in, in this, like, just keep being positive and just keep saying how, and just keep invalidating people. And that was the moment that I realized that not being good at conflict was a major risk to my own stress levels, my own happiness, to my team, to my business. And so my entire career since then, so that was probably 2007, 2008. And my entire career since then has been helping other people with that journey. And I I don't think I would have come to it if I hadn't been so wrong in that moment. (laughs) You know, the good fight certainly would not have been written if I hadn't gone through that personally and been such a bullheaded. (laughs) (laughs) It's a difficult one though, because it's, you know, I've got it in my mind that just keep swimming the dory, you know, they they carry on, but it's a difficult thing to turn around and say, no, I'm wrong. And I've got it wrong. We've, we have a mantra in our business that we keep going around in circles. It's very yeah. difficult to admit that you're going around in circles and you're doing exactly the same rubbish you were doing two, three years ago. So how do you get out of it? It's a it's a tough piece to admit. It's so hard. It's yeah. so hard. And mm. and I think the really hard thing is is getting to the point of saying, I can have I can be right on my truth. And I mm. think I was. I still think I was right on my truth. I was just completely intolerant of the fact that other people had a truth that was equally true. So in the good fight, I have a whole technique I call the two truths. Mm. And it's a process that people go through to, to name. And, and the only secret of doing the two truths is that their truth comes out of your mouth before yours. Mm. If you state your truth first, you're not going anywhere good. But if if you can manage to first recognize that there are two truths in the situation, and if you can make theirs come out of your mouth before yours does, then you're problem solving as allies instead mm. of fighting as adversaries. So that was a biggie for me. <laughs> it was, yeah. That was big. 
I think that's a lovely place to start because it talks, it starts to talk about this piece that's out there at the moment about getting in teams that people write a memo, we all read it together in the room, and then we go around. But the person who wrote the memo goes last. Everybody yeah. else speaks first. I love that. Yeah. Just so you get the truth, you get the view, you get the thoughts from everybody, and then you have your your view at the end. I love that concept. Yeah. And so that exercise I was talking to you about where we define. What's this? What's the unique value or the superpower of every role? What's their stakeholder and what's the tension they need to put on? I would be layering that exercise on. So when it's your turn to speak, you need to speak from those three things, from your superpower or your expertise, right. from your stakeholder and from your obligatory tension. And oh my goodness, how amazing would that conversation be? If it, so, so at the end, the decision owner has now been positioned by everybody else to have all those tensions out in the open to then make the optimal decision with each of those now on the table. And that's like, that's team Nirvana for me. Love it. And we, we had a preview conversation. I know we need to end now. And I'd love to get you back on just to talk about Canadian women's soccer team and yeah. Geordie, Geordie coach. Exactly. Got to talk about John Herdman. Yeah, Brilliant. which I loved before. <laughs> Leanne, as always, it's a pleasure. Thank you for being on today. If people want to reach you, find out more about you, where can they go? Tell us. Where. Yeah, the easiest place is just leannedavy.com. And I say it's easy, except for the spelling. Uh, so, uh, I'm sure we can have that in the notes cause it's Leanne with a one I and an N and an E and Davey with an E and a Y and oh my goodness. So it's oh. easy. The good news is when you have a name like Leanne Davey, so that you wouldn't know this being a Colin Hunter, but as a Leanne Davey, it's great because you get your URL, no problem. Just nobody can figure out what it is, <laughs> Spelling it. but leannedavey.com there are uh, hundreds of free resources there because as I said, if if I'm trying to make work a more meaningful part of people's lives, I believe pretty passionately in giving it away for free. Um, you can write to me directly from there. So either LinkedIn or leannedavy.com is where I hang out most of the time. Hang out. And as you say, I'll put it in the notes for those who are struggling with spelling. <laughs> yeah. But if you're writing to her, remember, don't put any adjectives in. Avoid those. <laughs> expression yeah yeah brilliant to talk to you stay so safe. nice to talk to you yeah and i can't you. wait to see you in person colin take care <laughs> bye bye wow then <laughs> that lady is incredible leanne davy i applaud you uh, great conversation great energy great enthusiasm for what she does able to flip between humor and serious messages in an instant her work in The Good Fight, the book, uh, her work on, on championing changes from simple things like SWAT into Otswa, um, but also just looking into her work on LinkedIn. If you're listening and you, you want to see how to do a LinkedIn social media strategy to drive a business, she's excellent at that. Her strategy pieces have been simply amazing, but also her work looking at November, what she's saying no to, in November engages her followers in a conversation that I've joined in this year and got a lot out of challenging myself on a number of things in that space. So thank you, Leanne, for being on here today. Hope you've enjoyed it. Love to hear your feedback. And I look forward to welcoming you back in another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast soon.